I'm Randy Brutkowitz, and today we're talking with Dr. Sylvie Raver. Dr. Raver received her undergraduate degree in neuroscience, magna cum laude, from Lafayette College, and her PhD degree in neuroscience from the University of Maryland School of Medicine, where she studied the impact of cannabinoid exposure on the maturation of cortical functions in a mouse model. From there, she did a one-year postdoc at the NIH and then made the jump to the Society for Neuroscience in 2015. Dr. Raver is currently the Senior Manager of Scientific Training and Policy for the Society of Neuroscience, a position which she's held since October of 2018 and which undoubtedly requires some very hands-on work. What compelled a young scientist always interested in neuroscience to make the jump from being a neuroscientist herself to leading the training of neuroscientists? Let's find out. Sylvia, welcome to Pathways. Thank you. Really excited to be here. You've been, I guess, interested in neuroscience forever since you were a neuroscience undergrad. So t tell us how your interest in neuroscience began and actually how it evolved into studying uh, the effects of uh, cannabinoids on, on the brains of developing mice. Um, sure. So I've, I've always had an interest in people. Um, when I was a younger child, I wanted to be a psychologist, um, and then that turned into a psychiatrist, and um, was really fascinated by what made people behave the way they did, um, and what made people, especially in my family, behave differently than the way that I behaved, um, even though, you know, we had the same, same background, same, same genes, things like that, um, and the more that I learned about um, psychology or psychiatry, it, it didn't seem to satisfy that central question of but why, but why, which is I think what drives a lot of scientists is to really know the next level uh, down in the questions, right? So um, I, I did some summer, some summer programs in college uh, or in high school, sorry, um, that really helped me understand that neuroscience was a field that I could study. Um, it was sort of new um, at the time to, to a lot of different college programs, but when I when I looked for colleges, um, I looked for small liberal arts colleges um, that had a neuroscience major or concentration or program. Um, and I really clicked with Lafayette College in Pennsylvania um, because it was the right size for me. They had a neuroscience major that was kind of a split between biology and psychology, which seemed sort of perfect for me. Um, and I could do research there. So that's that's what led me there and um, what eventually led me into the lab and um, I had a fantastically supportive um, advisor at Lafayette College um, by the name of Lisa Gable and um, I'm still in touch with her she's fantastic um, I now get to see her as a colleague which is very strange and exciting and still surreal I still feel like her student um, and um, yeah so she she pushed me um, through a research project she was a great mentor about, from the whole conception of the of the project through um, publishing and then um, presenting a poster at the Society for Neuroscience meeting um, after I after I'd gone to gone to grad school, but she she suggested graduate school um, as as an opportunity for me. I saw a lot of co uh, colleagues, other students going to dental school or medical school, um, but I really liked being in the lab. Um, I really liked digging into the questions and developing hypothesis and testing it and doing all the things that that you do um, in the lab. And um, so that led me to uh, the University of Maryland, and which was a, the right fit program for me um, uh, in the School of Medicine um, within the graduate program there. 
um, and did a bunch of different lab rotations as was required um, for, for a program in neuroscience student. Um, and, I, and I landed with um, Asaf Keller, who was a, an expert in, I'll say expert, he is an expert, um, in cortical physiology. Um, and he had this crazy new idea that he'd just been sort of thinking about testing out um, and he didn't know anything about cannabinoids or the cannabinoid system necessarily, but he had this had this beginning of a hypothesis. And um, I had an interest in um, a little bit of drug abuse and mental health disorders. And together we we put my interest with his expertise in physiology and um, did a really interesting um, set of experiments during my during my graduate um, studies that that I'm really proud of. Now you published several papers, and and I think you gave several presentations as well, which is which is great. I guess for for me, I'm thinking, okay, you you had a great mentor as an undergraduate, and that's really wonderful to hear. Who I think led, probably led by example and and allowed you many opportunities and the same opportunities you had in graduate school. And then you went to the NIH, which is down the road, and then. You were there for about a year. You were involved in the postdoctoral association there, which didn't exist when I was when I was there. But yeah. nonetheless, you had a year, and then you made the jump. So how did that how did that come about? Um, intentionally and with a lot of sort of creativity, I guess I'll say. Um, as as probably many people are aware, there's a little bit of lack of clarity if you want to you know, veer from the path that is laid out to us by our mentors um, who are in academia. If you want to kind of figure something else out, um, don't see a role for yourself in academia or just want to explore different things. Sometimes you have to get a little creative. Um, and I think students now get, um, have a lot more opportunities presented to them formally through career development um, seminars and whole offices of postdoctoral training and, and stuff like that. Um, but it can still be a little bit daunting. You still have to find your own way sometimes and you really have to have a supportive advisor or mentor again and here is where i lucked out i'd say the third time by having a mentor who um named cj lynn at um, the nih who gave me the space to pursue interests that were outside of the lab um and that would that i were, was realizing would serve me better um a nasty corollary of all of the research that I'd been doing um, with mice and rodents since um, undergrad is I started getting really allergic to them. Um, and at the same time as my allergies were getting just very, very bad, <laughs> um, I was realizing that my that I saw a role for myself outside of academia. Um, I was really more driven to, um, again, going back to people, I'm really interested in people. I found research being a little bit isolating sometimes. Um, and the I just, felt like my skills and my interests were drawing me elsewhere. I really was critical about what, what do I want to put my time into? And I found that some of the, the projects that I was doing outside of the lab were really the ones that I was the most passionate about. Um, and so CJ was fully supportive of me exploring the huge array of career development resources that the NIH has uh, for its trainees, especially its postdocs. Um, I was at the Baltimore campus of the NIH at the intramural program for um, the National Institute on Aging. Um, and we have a lot of resources there, but most of them are clustered in the NIH's main um, main campus in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, so I was able to do a lot of a lot of stuff remotely. Um, I joined committees. I led organ led symposia at um, 
at the Research Institute in Baltimore that I was at. I'm happy to go into detail about any of these things because um, I feel like I did everything at once. Um, and it felt like that because I devoted a lot of time outside of the lab to it, weekend time, evening time. And I also had a supportive uh, mentor who would let me go to um, full day research symposiums or a career development fair as long as as long as the work was getting done. Um, so I, for health reasons and for interest, I realized that I needed to keep my postdoc pretty short. Um, and I talked to a number of people as I was kind of building a network, um, exploring what I wanted to do. And they all, all their advice for me was, if you can make yourself competitive for a job, then take a job, because um, I was looking for a fellowship at that time. Uh, maybe in policy, maybe maybe the AAAS policy, um, science and policy fellowship. Um, but the job came first, and SFN took a chance on me as a new manager and um, and hired me with my expertise that I had sort of accumulated over my career as a neuroscientist, but also over the past year and a half um, outside of the lab. And um, I've been very happy with that, and I'm really glad that they were willing to to look at me as um, someone who had potential um, because I was relatively new in my career at that point. Now, that's, that's great because of all the changes in terms of the mindsets of folks realize, as PIs, let's say, we understand that our, our trainees are gonna have different interests. They don't always wanna do what we're doing and that's okay and that's our responsibility mm -hmm. to help. If we don't know what to, how to direct them that we can get help for them for folks yeah. to be able to get on the right track and to meet folks. So, so you are a senior manager. So you, are, you originally came in as, uh, as, a, as a lower level and so you got promoted last year. So could you tell us what a typical day for you looks like? Um, a typical day is a lot of meetings and a ton of collaboration. Um, a bazillion emails, <laughs> um, chatting all day long with coworkers about um, various projects that we're doing, um, and a lot of writing. So I'll unpack each of those a little bit. Um, SFN is a very collaborative, Society for Neuroscience, SFN, is a very collaborative organization. Um, I don't know if that's particular to the culture here or to associations. Um, I understand it's, it, it's very common. We all collaborate in the lab, right? But everyone kind of goes into their own track. Uh, at a certain point. Um, it's very rare that I participate, that I do any project um, at work completely alone, um, which took some getting used to. As a scientist, you can be a little more, um, and that's not, not so much the case here. And so it's, it's everything from making sure that I talk to um, the right people to set up the technology infrastructure of a project that that I'm working on to working with our communications team and our marketing team to make sure that the language is appropriate and that we have a full communications plan to push out the project that I'm working on um, to working with the two um, associates who directly report to me. I'm really lucky um, to manage two fantastically talented women who are both um, PhDs in neuroscience as well. So they're super motivated, very smart, very smart ladies. Um, and I, feel a great responsibility to make sure that they have clear direction um, and guidance and expectations set for them to, so that they can thrive. Um, and we have a very good little, little triangle of a team um, that, that we work on. So it's constant collaboration. Usually my door is open um, and constant collaboration with open door down the hall, people, um, people coming in and out. Um, and so that's the, that's, 
that's the collaboration, lots of meetings to have those um, collaboration points formally. Um, we try to be, we've learned a lot about how to run an efficient meeting, um, an agenda and clear directions for everybody to know why they're in that meeting. I think um, our culture maybe is that we all feel a little bit overburdened or overscheduled um, and overprescribed sometimes. So being respectful of people's time, uh, making, making meetings efficient and making sure everybody's clear what they're doing there <laughs> is helpful. Um, and follow up, uh, very clear, you're doing this, you're doing this, everybody agree, break kind of thing. Um, we don't always do the handbrake, um, maybe we should. <laughs> but um, yeah, so lots, lots of meetings, lots of in-person collaboration um, and collaborative writing. Um, I write emails, I write memos, I write um, documents for committee review, I write grants. Um, so lots, all of these are non-technical writing, but they infuse neuroscience into them um, or principles of neuroscience training or, or aspects of the neuroscience workforce that we want to be responsive to. Um, so it all uses the experience, the expertise that I've gained, um, but I tailor my writing style a little bit um, and I'm always trying to improve it. There's, I think you can continue to improve your writing throughout your entire career. There's always room for growth there. Um, so lots and lots of writing. Um, and collaboration. If I didn't say collaboration, I'll say it again. Lots of collaboration. Well, you, you had mentioned that the Society for Neuroscience or SFN gave gave you, they took a chance on you, I think you, you, you mentioned. But how did you find this position in the first place? Was it advertised somewhere? Did you just meet uh, folks and that's how it just happened yeah. to hit? Um, great question because everybody wants to know where to find jobs. Um, and uh, in this case, it was a kind of a multi-pronged approach. So when I was going through my do all the things all the time stage um, during my postdoc, one of the things that I looked into was um, a fellowship program that SFN had at the time. It's now slightly different, uh, different name. It's an early career policy program. Um, and I was starting to develop this interest in policy um, and science policy and figuring out what that meant. Um, I, I missed the deadline. I saw the application deadline, but I emailed the, the email address at SFN I should have said, I'm an, I was an SFN member, so I knew the society. I'd been a member since, um, since college, because it's the, or, the society for the field that I was in. Um, and I'd gone to the meeting something like six times, which is a big marquee event that, that we put on every year. Um, so I knew the organization already. Um, and I'd emailed this email address, so sort of like an, I thought it was an unmanned inbox, um, to ask a question about this um, about this this ambassador program or this fellowship program that I had seen. Um, and I struck up a conversation via email with the woman who emailed me back. She was a fellow in the office at the time. We talked about getting out of the lab um, and mouse allergies. So it was something that we both connected over email um, with. So good, just kind of cold email, but, um, but it worked out. And then um, I attended, because I was local, I was able to attend um, SFN's Capitol Hill Day, which was a sort of the the annual event for um, advocacy, um, science advocacy that they do, that we do um, on Capitol Hill. So I came to that event and I met the, the woman that I had been emailing with um, and nothing came of that. I just, the event was really fun and it showed me what federal advocacy work looks like. Um, and around that time I started signing up for SFN's job alerts. So they have um, a bunch of different organizations have this. You sign up for updates whenever a new job is posted and um, I think in the summer, um, just after exactly a year after I had started my postdoc, um, this this job 
posting came through my inbox. Um, I applied for it. I put a lot of thought into the resume and my cover letter and um, used some of the tools available to me through the NIH to type up my resume and my cover letter and have those reviewed by people who really knew what they were doing. Um, and I didn't hear anything back about the job for a little while. Um, and then I got, got in, in, a bite from the recruiter um, and um, was able to follow up with the person who I'd been emailing um, just based on that kind of cold email long ago. Um, when when I wasn't hearing about the job because um, they'd expressed interest and she she poked the right person in the office um, and they looked at my resume critically and invited me in and I got hired a week later so it happened very quickly um, after some perseverance um, and initiative that I think I took on the at the right time try not to be pushy but they had expressed interest and I really felt that I was a good fit for it the job description matched the only thing I was really nervous about was um, I didn't have formal management experience um, um, in this kind of a setting. I had managed people in the lab, I'd managed projects, I'd managed post-bac students and summer students. And so one of the tricks was just converting that language into um, the right language to, to make it clear to SFN that I had the experience, um, even if it wasn't in this setting. All right, I think that's a really great comment and, and statement in terms of, as scientists, there are our graduate training, in fact, undergraduate training, you're, pro, you're a project manager, and you write a lot, you talk a lot, and that's really important. But also, I think that's really important is your message that you, you, know, you made like a cold call, a cold email to a fellow at the SFN, and you got to meet her, and then you built that that network there, and then when you didn't hear from them, when you applied for a job, you knew who you could contact, and they would they would do the poking around for you, and yeah. it, and it worked out. Yeah. Yes. Again, lucky, lucky, lucky all the way through. But that's based on your it's it was serendipitous that you that you had emailed that person in the first place, but then uh, she was a, a wonderful resource, and I I really encourage folks. We're listening in to really listen to your message very closely because it's that type of stepwise approach that can yeah. provide opportunities that you might not get otherwise. It's a really good point, and I'm sure you've talked about this in other interviews. Um, some some of us can be afraid of the word networking. Um, it feels a little artificial. Feels kind of like um, like match dating sometimes, maybe, um, and can be intimidating, especially if you're doing it in person and new to a conference or something like that. Um, but it's really just relationship building and it can happen via email and it can happen via phone calls and it can happen over coffee and really whatever um, venue fits you best. And that's really, that was really critical for my job transition is start building a network. You start with one person and you talk to them and then you ask who they can connect you to and you talk to them and you, and it just kind of grows from there. So. Um, you never know who is going to be to present an opportunity to you or can help you follow up with an opportunity that you found. When you were in graduate school, when you first started graduate school, mm -hmm. where did you see yourself 10 years in the f into the future? It's a really great question and I don't have a good answer to it, unfortunately. <laughs> thought a lot about it um, and I, I would have done a lot of things differently um, in graduate school if I'd known that this is where I wanted to end up but then I might not have ended up here, right? That's that's the catch-22. Um, I would have taken initiative earlier to really figure out what 
what interests suited me. Because um, at the time when I went to graduate school, I only knew research. Um, and I thought I was a good fit for that, but I didn't know if I wanted to be a professor. I didn't know if I wanted to go into biotech. I didn't know if I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I really didn't have a clear vision, um, which is sort of rare for me because I'm a pretty methodical planned person and lack of clarity gives me, um, gives me a little bit of uh, trepidation. So I really just kind of went in and was like, I'll do research for a while. And maybe it's because I was what, 22 and didn't have a fully functioning prefrontal cortex at that point. Um, but I, I guess I just didn't really see the clear path for me. And then I ended up making it up as I went. So um, I didn't think that I would be where I am now, but I'm very happy with um, the track that I've taken. I think that sort of contributing to science in the bigger picture, helping the field, advancing needs of trainees, especially since I was one not so long ago, um, that's really what I feel passionate about. And I landed on that. To me, it feels late because it was in my postdoc and towards the end of my graduate studies, but um, it, it was the right time for me. So I'm glad that my lack of clarity ended up launching me to where I am. Yeah, I think everybody who decides on a non-academic career path, they, they figure that out at different stages and a lot of people do as postdocs. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's not unusual yeah. at all. And, but the, you know, ultimately, as long as you are happy at what you do and you feel like you're contributing, you can't beat that. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. I, the only thing that I would really want to do differently is start earlier. Um, and I think everybody should, should really be critical about what motivates them and where they find their energy directed. And you can do that in small moments, just in your day, look at your day and think, do I really like doing the experiments? Do I really like writing the papers? Do I like organizing people and presenting? Those each figure out where your interests are lying and what, what's drawing your attention and your passions. And that'll help clarify um, what type of career might be good for you after after your training. Yeah, I, I think always asking, asking yourself questions is really critical. If you don't really know what you, what you want to do, it's like, well, what will, what will make me happy? Yeah. So, when you talk about your position, and you know, clearly you're you're very happy in your job. You're glad you went down that route, and even though you wish you'd done it earlier, but like she said, it wouldn't have fallen down that path. Right. But but what's the most difficult part of your job? Do you think? I find it some of the most rewarding, but it's also the most challenging. Is the is the personnel management um, and. I really, really enjoy it. I like supervising people. Um, I'm learning to find the difference between um, coaching, coaching people and just managing them because I want to ultimately uh, make sure that the people that I bring into the organization or that I'm responsible for um, their day-to-day -day activities, I want to make sure that they thrive and that they um, are challenged um, and pushed and not pushed in ways that are uncomfortable for them and but set them up with stretch projects there's so much there's so much in personnel management um, and it's it's something that I feel very passionately about and um, and is still pretty new to me um, and I've been very very lucky I've hired three people um, at SFN one is no longer working under me she went to a different part of the organization so I still get to work with her in a different capacity um, and then I manage two two people now as I mentioned and every one of them is different um, and how I communicate with them is slightly different and how they need to be managed and how they need to be, um, 
how expectations are set and everything from workflow to how they keep their to-do lists is slightly different. And I'm the same person, right? Managing all these, all these different people. It's, it's only two right now and it'll only get more complex if I move up the, um, the, the, the chain of, of management here or anywhere else. Um, so I think figuring out what each person needs um, and adapting my management style to that is, there's no, I don't think there's any perfect way to do it. Maybe there is, there, there are some managers who just seem to have it very intuitively. Um, and I'm, I'm a people person for sure. And I rate very high in empathy on all these, these tests that I've taken. So I think I read people pretty well and it still is something to, to constantly, um, it constantly stretches me and challenges me to make sure that I'm meeting, meeting employees uh, with what they need. That's the toughest thing I, yeah. I, I'm sure in terms of uh, being a supervisor, it's, it's personnel management is very difficult. But you also, yeah. you're, what, you, what you've just been saying reminds me of the difference between uh, the, a manager and a leader. Okay, you say a manager does things right, whereas a leader does the right thing. And everything that you've been describing about your folks is leadership. I'm learning those differences too. And maybe the second thing that I would say is, is challenging, um, kind of gets to that as well, is um, I'm a very, um, very tactical person, I guess. I, I like to follow a protocol. Maybe it's my training as a science. I like to have a plan um, and know exactly what's going to come next. And I feel a little bit, um, I, don't, I don't love when there's ambiguity there. So project management and having like a structure for something is very, resonates a lot with me. Um, I've received feedback from my supervisor and his, um, who are awesome, awesome people and very supportive um, and provide me with very, me with very good management that in order to grow at this organization or another organization, um, you eventually have to pivot to thinking more strategically and not having all the answers and not having everything laid out and knowing exactly what you're going to do next. And so anytime I'm in, that's, that's been something that I'm growing into with this, um, this senior manager position that I went into in October is it's drifting away a little bit from the tactical, the day-to-day -day, and delegating that to more of that to the two people under me, which means I have less control of the details um, and I have to trust them. And I do, um, I do, <laughs> but it can still be very scary sometimes to let go of those small details. I think you probably, that probably resonates with you as a supervisor, really anyone who manages people, but shifting if more of a um, process person, shifting into um, strategy can be an uneasy fit sometimes um, because you really have to kind of let yourself be creative and and not worry about how something is going to get done um, at that point you eventually will but you really have to just blue sky it and think of what what could we do if we wanted to do everything um, and I'm in a bit of that role right now and it's um, it's really exciting um, because it's new things and new challenges and what can we do and how are we positioned to do this but it's also a little bit gives me a little bit of unease because I don't know exactly how we're going to accomplish something and that um, that's something that I'm stretching to stretching myself to figure out how to do better that's part of the most that's part of the exciting aspect I, I suppose as well where you don't know you're, you're shooting for the moon and you want to say well we'll see where we go and right. hopefully we land close that's and totally science too, right? <laughs> right, no, exactly. You're having, you're having fun doing it. So when you're talking about being with your, I guess, helping guide, lead your, your team, 
-hmm. And we talked about the most difficult part of the job, but I suspect that's also the, one of the most rewarding parts of your job in helping people grow. And it's, I guess, by the same token, you're growing as well. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, as Again, as someone who really likes to have control of some of the details and know what the plan is, um, when you have capable people under you who you can trust, it's a wonderful thing because they can and you're further removed from them. And, and it's this magical thing called delegation. And for some people it comes really naturally. Um, and uh, for me, it doesn't as much. Um, and I have to feel comfortable with, um, learn to feel comfortable with not knowing everything and trusting that they have a handle on it. And most most importantly, establishing establishing trust between the two of us or three of us, it is such that I know that they're executing the job to the best of their ability, and that they can come to me. They trust that they can come to me for clarity, or if something has gone wrong, and and they won't be, you know, it's a safe space. They won't be punished. I understand they're coming with great intentions, and they just want to get everything right. Um, and sometimes it's because I'm not clear, or sometimes it's because the process isn't clear. So um, all of it pushes me and pushes me to grow as a, a leader and a manager um, at the same time. I have uh, one other question for you, and, and that's your advice for, say, because students and postdocs are the main listeners to our podcast, but mm -hmm. and I, you're really the first person we've spoken to who represents a professional scientific organization. And maybe okay. you could, could you know, what kind of advice would you give folks to try to explore opportunities in whether it's their professional society or, or others, because there certainly are folks who might be, let's say, a pharmacologist, but they're in a different, uh, different uh, society, but nonetheless, they're still doing science like you. I think that scientific societies, professional societies are really good fits for, um, for scientists. You have to have a few specific skills. Um, I mean, of course, you have to have specific skills for any any career path. Um, but at least at SFN, everything happens via um, all of our priorities are executed via committees of our members. So feeling comfortable working a little bit behind the scenes is something that's important. Um, I think we're all pretty used to that um, in working with collaborative teams in research. Um, but you have to feel comfortable putting putting your members first, um, trusting the expertise of your members and staffing them, supporting them because this is, all of these organizations are volunteer, volunteer based usually um, to execute the priorities or to set the priorities, I would say. Staff execute the priorities. Um, so it's, it's very much being professional and respectful and knowing where your members are coming from, um, members like professors or, or other trainees, um, things like that, and, and sort of knowing, knowing how to work with them. So that's something we come in with, but you just have to, you have to remember that. Um, being able to write is critical. As I mentioned, there's tons of writing, so it's writing for um, non-technical audiences or writing for vendors or um, I can't tell you how often I'm taking the science that we're putting, we're putting together, say, a, a short course, and I take the science that the experts are communicating to me, and I summarize it, or I distill it, or I write it in clippier language or whatever um, to give to our marketing team, to give to our communications team. I work with them to make sure that that 
gets translated back accurately. So it's sort of as a scientific liaison. So that's something that we're really well positioned to do um, coming out of the lab as long as you feel confident um, and have given yourself exposure in writing um, for non-technical audiences. Um, just writing research papers probably won't give you all of those skills. You need to stretch yourself a little bit. Um, and also having exposure to a budget or understanding sort of the financial management of your project or your lab um, is also really critical because I, that's critical for anything. Um, but I work in a nonprofit um, and SFN is, um, is very mindful of member dues and member fees and trying to keep everything efficient. Um, and so understanding the, the nuances of, of budgets is, is very critical and being fiscally responsible. Um, so that's something that's, um, you may have to take a little bit of initiative to get if you're a graduate student, um, talk to your advisor about how projects are financially managed in the lab. Um, that's just expertise that I didn't necessarily have coming in. Um, and I'm yeah, that's an, that's, oh, yeah. Sorry. No, I was going to say that's, that, that's excellent because people don't really usually think about budgets. Please, please continue. Um, but like I said, I signed up for job alerts um, and I talked to the staff. Um, you might find that at the end of the email box is someone like me who's a scientist who really, really is excited to answer questions from other scientists. Um, I don't have a lot of neuroscientists reach out to me or the other two neuroscientists on my team and say, hey, what jobs are available at SFN? I wish that more did. Um, and we have a booth presence at our annual meeting where you can come and talk to the scientific training team. Um, the staff that work at scientific societies are and this is across the board, this is not just SFN. They are mission driven. They are extremely passionate about what they do because they've chosen to work in a nonprofit sector. They've chosen to work for members. They're very devoted to the members and they're always willing to talk. Um, a lot of other associations, FASA, Association of Cell Biology, these have scientists working for them too. And probably the best way to figure out how to become one of those scientists working at those is to talk to the ones that are. Um, and People love talking about themselves <laughs> and people love answering questions to help other scientists um, make choices that are um, the best suit their career goals. So my advice is always just reach out, send an email, talk to someone at a meeting, um, ask to get coffee if you're in the same city, ask to jump on the phone and ask some questions um, about their job and how they get there, and then start that network and sign up for, sign up for emails um, uh, to know when jobs are available. No, that's, that's, that's great advice. So th thank you, Sylvie. Yeah. So, I, so I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Sylvie Raver, for sharing her career path from her original neuroscience interests and subsequent doctoral training, and now being a leader for the Society for Neuroscience. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website, SoundCloud, and on iTunes under IUSM Pathways. Also, in addition to the audio from our broadcasts, for some of our interviews, we've captured the video as well. You can see these on the IUSM Pathways YouTube channel. Join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career path of another professional who holds a PhD in the sciences and how they use their education and background for the greater public good. I'm Randy Brutkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brutkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.